0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Nick Lipley, CPD Editor at RCNI. And this episode of the podcast is exploring the evolving role of nurses in supporting person centred end of life care. We'll be looking at the increasing challenges that nurses face when undertaking this role, as well as shared decision making and communication and how nurses in this role can look after themselves better. A CPD article on this topic has been published through our primary healthcare journal, and UK end of life care charity Marie Curie has sponsored this to make it open access. Joining me to discuss the issues are two of the authors of this article, Tracy Smith and Kasia Patinovska. Tracy is currently Marie Curie Clinical Educator for Scotland, and Kasia is a Marie Curie research nurse. In Northern Ireland. Hello, Tracy. Hello, Kasia. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us.
1: Hello, and thank you very much for inviting us. Hello, everyone. Good. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, good to have you both on board. Uh, Tracy first and then Kasia there. So, can I just start off with you, Tracy? Perhaps uh, what challenges are nurses facing in this field?
1: Yeah, and in many ways, the challenges that we're facing today have actually been known about for quite some time. Um, For a long time, we've known about our increasing ageing population that we have in this country and across the world, actually. Um, So that in itself is going to create an increased demand for people that require palliative care. Many of those people won't require input from specialist services, but they will need care and support, particularly from those working in primary care. So our, our nurses, social care services and our GPs. Um, many of those people will have more than one life-limiting condition, so that can complicate things a little bit. Um, but there's no doubt that, that services in community will be stretched on top of that of course we've got very very well publicized staffing shortages which again are not new we could have anticipated this um, but we know that the resource isn't there across all of our services not just in community and that will put extra pressure on all of our staff to provide what they would consider as being really good end-of-life care Um, the time pressures in particular Are are something that our staff struggle with because they know that people near the end of life will need time. And uh, that's that's sometimes a resource that you just don't have. One thing Mm. (coughs) that I just wanted to pick up on as well around this is that no matter who I've worked with, whether it's in social care settings, hospitals, Community or hospice is that there is a real passion for everyone to get it right for these patients, and um, often when we feel we've not done it right, it leads to frustration, and a lot of dissatisfaction around the job can result of that. Mm -hmm. So I think this is something that we're we're all battling with within within clinical roles just now, and of course the pandemic really compounded a lot of those issues and have made it worse. Um, We know that district nurses are leaving and that there are reduced numbers of those very experienced nurses working in community. So that's a challenge for everyone.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and of course, how nurses can look after themselves better when providing uh, this care is something we will be looking at um, later on in in this podcast. So um, thanks, uh, Tracy, very much for that sort of overview at the beginning. Kasia, turning to you. Can you tell us, I mean, give us a bit more of an idea about uh, person-centred end-of-life care. Could you tell us what that is and what it means in practice?
2: Yes, yes. Person-centred care really really need to be understood for the lens of relationships. And I mean those relationships between all people that are involved in care. will be patients, their families, friends, but also service providers. Those relationships that, that really need to be built on, on respect, on understanding, on creating this trusting, safe space where, where people can make decisions for themselves. In, in the article, we actually focus in particular on the nurse-patient relationship as a, as a really core concept of person-centered care. These relationships, to be able to build these relationships, will take ongoing practice, reflection, but also emotional investment to be able to create such a relationship with people we support as, as nurses. Uh, something something that I notice over over years, many many times in practice, is that that nurses are naturally drawn into helping people, making things better, things fixing things. Sometimes we often focus on solutions, actions, but I believe there is something very powerful in being alongside people, being in the moment. Sometimes we need to take a step back, be silent companions on a journey, not trying to fill the space with words because there are situations that no words can help in that moment and something um, to add that we need to be able to to read cues and ask people what's important to them, mm-hmm. what what do they need and, and not really make any assumptions about that.
0: You talk there, Kasia, uh, very eloquently about sort of um, being in the moment, uh, being uh, a silent, uh, sorry, was it was the phrase uh, silent observer that you used? or used I
2: mean, si- silent companions, yes.
0: Silent companions, that's mm-hmm. right. But there is also uh, there also I mean uh, so much uh, a large part of this is is about communicating uh, in the right way, communicating uh, with people you're caring for directly, but also their loved ones and their carers. How, Tracy, how can nurses get this aspect of of communication right?
1: it's a huge question that isn't it it's um it is a bit <laughs> yeah it is it is and that, and it's the thing that that probably will Cause stress and anxiety for nurses. I, th- I think the first thing to mention is that there is no script to follow in any of this. So, although we can uh, practice our communication skills by going on communication skills courses, we can observe others to see what works, what doesn't work, and often we can learn by the good examples, but sometimes for- from the bad examples that we see. So, these are opportunities that we have while we're working in practice or for education and we should use them and reflect on them as much as we possibly can. But I mentioned before about getting it right and, and it is so very subjective and each individual experience that people have will be unique to them and that, the same goes for the communication. But effective communication is the golden thread that will go throughout. Um, sometimes we there are barriers that hold us back, sometimes nurses, GPs, any healthcare professional, worry that we're going to upset people, that we're going to cause distress by talking about death and dying. Um, Sometimes it's not clear maybe sometimes what the the prognosis actually is, so we worry about that sometimes, that we see things at the wrong time. and sometimes we don't have all the answers and as kasha says there is something in the power of silence and listening and and i think that's at the core for a lot of this is actually listening encouraging that person-centered approach and then responding in a way that that meets the needs of the patients and the families themselves but it's not it's not easy and it does take time and experience and practice yes
0: some of this will underpin uh, advanced care planning as well, I would have thought. Is is now a good time to talk about that, do you think? Yes, ab- absolutely, because
1: advanced care planning is about having conversations with people mm-hmm. and being alongside the, the things that Kasia has mentioned already. Um, it's it's important to say that not all patients and families will want to engage in these kinds of conversations, Mm -hmm. There are some people who will quite clearly and categorically tell you that they don't want to talk about it. But nor can we assume that when people are silent and don't ask questions, that they don't have things that they would like to ask you, but are Mm -hmm. maybe frightened of opening up the topic. So Kasia mentioned listening for cues, um, and that's part of what we would do in that process of advanced care planning. We were encouraging people to think about the future, what their needs are, what mm-hmm. their wishes are, being alongside them, sharing in the decision making and and importantly, not making false promises to people about what they may wish. Um, we have to be honest. And uh, I think Kasia probably used the term authentic- authenticity. I don't know if you did actually say that, Kasia, but it is about being honest and open. and um, being realistic with people too, so that you don't give false promises.
0: I'm guessing it is. Uh, it is quite easy to to overpromise things. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say it, it is a trap that we've probably all fallen into at one point in our careers, where we've promised something that that we can't guarantee. Um, and equally, we're quite good sometimes at avoiding approaching the topics so when there when there is a silence there from the patient and family side we almost can collude with that sometimes and Mm -hmm. uh, assume that people don't want to talk about things Mm -hmm. so that's that's a barrier that, that we can use
2: no, I think that's a very good point about uh, not um, not starting those conversations, not um, not not creating those those moments that those conversations can take place. And like you said, Tracy, colluding with family because nobody wants to talk about it. So I will not talk about it either. Yes. yes.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about uh, barriers from a professional's perspective. Uh, what do you think about the? What are the barriers with regards uh, that that either the the people we're caring for or their carers? What are the barriers that 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 they face?
2: Mm. Oh, multiple. Uh, I think there is just it's a hugely emotional subject it's so difficult to talk about dying about losing the people we really love uh, facing something which which we know it's unavoidable but it's just so difficult that we prefer not to face it i think that's that's the biggest barrier not you know um also not not try not avoiding maybe upsetting people, hurting people uh, by having those conversations. But on the other hand, we know that actually those conversations have a, have a potential huge benefit to to help the, the person who is dying, help the family members to bring everyone together. So, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Kasia, um, I'd like to turn to you once again here and, and ask you about your experience of providing uh, person centred end of life care in the um in the article which you published with us uh, you refer to a case study about manier tell us a little yeah. bit about that
2: yes deep breath here for me mm. yes um, i met manier 2 years ago and, and and i visited him several times over over one week mostly twice a day uh, twice a day that's just how my shifts worked at the time and he died 3 days after my last visit Um, He was only 37 when I met him, had partnered two young children and was dying with lung cancer. Strong, funny, kind person who absolutely absolutely did not want to speak about his condition, yet he joked that pain was part of the dying. So... Mm -hmm. For me, it was really important to recognize his needs at the very beginning and, and build this trusting relationship, which, which I knew would be would be huge benef- hugely beneficial foundation to, to support him when, when his condition would deteriorate. So initially we talked about meaning of his tattoos, about his beloved Rottweiler, about places he, he was planning to visit at the weekend to spend time with the family. It was it was difficult because I felt that he may not be able to leave the house in a few days due to due to his condition. So I gently mentioned other ideas like barbecue in the garden while while not taking his hope away. Mm-hmm. So over, the, over those first few days, I was I was observing, I was on the journey alongside him while in the background, working with the team to ensure we were prepared for changes in his conditions, so or we have medication, we have hospital bed ready, and so on. And those things have, absolutely have been mentioned to him, but at that stage, he did not want to talk about any of that. After a after few days, um, when I was coming in, he started going to his bedroom. There, he would be much more open and honest, talking about more difficult things. Uh, when, when his family couldn't hear that. But that could mm-hmm. only happen when, when he was ready for it. And something that, a moment that I would like to share here is t- probably the most difficult moment that I had with him at all was, was during our last conversation, exactly week after after my first, first visit. Mm-hmm. He asked me behind the closed doors, is it just a job? Mm-hmm. I explained yeah i explained with tears near gathering in my eyes that no it's it's not just a job and we stayed in that moment together silently and and after a moment i said to him that i will never forget you that you taught me a lot and that i'm sorry when i when i came back later that evening he was unconscious and he died 3 days later I know that, mm. yeah, I know looking, looking back that we build this really authentic and trusting patient and nurse relationship, which which I know was hugely beneficial to him. But it did have impact on me emotionally, as you can imagine.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we can we can hear in your voice, hear how much it, it still is with you, that experience. Yes. Um, in terms of personal learning that came out of that have you explored that have you reflected on that
2: yes yes absolutely and you know we all know that we will have patients that we will never forget we have situations we'll never forget. And, and nurses have reported that those most, what we sometimes say, emotionally challenging patient situations that are the ones that people we can identify with, people of similar age, of life circumstances, parents with young children. Mm-hmm. And and I think the recognizing that um, helps us to take a moment to to reflect, to take a step back, to really take action to so- support ourselves and it may be talking with the team, with the colleagues, what's what's happening with us. Mm-hmm. It may be going for a run after a shift. And particularly, I remember that after one day, after after seeing Manira, I came home and went for a run. And, wow, that was really cathartic for me. Um, mm-hmm. But again, different things will work for different people. And, you know, yeah. the, the, there are absolutely, there's so many pressures in healthcare systems right now. And... Uh, like Tracy said, there, those pressures have been there, are, and also they will be there. And I think that something that was particularly helpful to me uh, is recognizing what I can change and what is outside of my control. Mm-hmm. So I can go for a run and release the tension that way. Uh, I can take a few breaths before entering the patient's room to ground myself, to focus on here and now. But I absolutely cannot ch- change the system we work within. Those wider societal challenges, the injustice that we that we witness right now, there will always be pressures. And it's really a, for us to find a way of working with those external pressures, with those difficult emotional challenges, and and really what's here in front of us right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha, thank thank you so much for sharing your experiences there they're they're very insightful very moving and of course you touch here on the subject of self-care for nurses and uh, and for care professionals it may sound obvious but can you tell tell us tell the listeners uh why self-care for nurses is is so important and in general terms are there any pointers that you can can give about how listeners can care for themselves better.
2: <laughs> it seems like obvious, obvious, quite uh, obvious answer yeah. because yeah, it's because we are people. We've got, we need to look after ourselves. We cannot, you know, if if we. If we are challenged emotionally and we give and give and give and work under pressure, our buckets will be empty and we won't be able to help others. We've we've heard about you know um about burnout so much recently. And the life is busy, it's not the life that the the working life, but life outside of work, all different challenges. So yes, it's absolutely crucial and it should be now always in in our kind of our thinking, like. I need to be well myself to, to, to really to really help others, and, and there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of what the, what the organizations can do, and I think we, particularly in the article, we we mentioned something about uh, clinical supervision that uh, could be really, um, if if it's in place for in organizations, could be really helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Tracy, I'm going to turn turn to you just for a moment uh, or two to to talk here about uh, clinical supervision and and the role that that has in supporting staff?
1: Yeah, as Kasia quite rightly says, the organisation has a role to play in supporting us as well. And having formal clinical supervision is one way of doing that and supporting your staff. Unfortunately, my my experience from talking to various different people is that it isn't always available. Um, But where it is, it can be a forum that... uh, can really help you on a regular basis to do that stepping back that Kasia mentioned. So Mm -hmm. stepping back, giving you a protected space to think and reflect about your clinical practice, about your emotions, what drives your behaviours. It can really help you gain some new perspective and sometimes turn something that has perhaps been a very challenging negative situation into something that's a little bit more positive. Um, not always, sometimes we need to acknowledge that sometimes when when things are bad, they are just that, and there's nothing that could have changed that situation. But what clinical supervision can help you do, particularly in a group situation, is give colleagues a chance to tell their stories and reflect and in in that kind of group activity, there's a, a commonality, I suppose, some su- support and understanding from people that that know what the job is like and what it, it can entail and the effect that it can have on you sometimes. So mm. that quiet, quiet space for reflection and learning, of course, you know, we shouldn't underestimate that too. So through all of our experiences, there is usually some learning to be had and uh, that's invaluable.
0: Can I, can I just say that there may be uh, listeners here who who are who don't work in nursing so um Tracy just uh, give us a, a quick overview of what cl- clinical supervision normally involves just to give give a bit of context there to what you're what you're talking about
1: yeah the, there are different approaches but suppose what I'm describing is resilience-based clinical supervision where you would get together with a facilitator Or a supervisor and either in a group or in one-to-one you would meet regularly usually once every six weeks something like that a time and place that's agreed by the group uh, where there's a safe space agreement where each member of the group agrees on the conditions that the group will run confidentiality obviously is extremely important and as time as that group evolves or if it's a one-to-one relationship as that evolves the trust builds and people are able usually to be vulnerable in those situations and not feel judged. And therefore, they'll open up about the things that they're finding difficult and also celebrate the things that are going well. Um, and it's, it's not usually, certainly not in the model I'm describing, it's not management supervision. It's usually amongst peers, but with a skilled facilitator.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks for clarifying that, um, Tracy. Um, Kasia, just to come back to you for a moment—a a matter of detail, really—and just to just to uh, stress to, to listeners, we talked about the the case study with Mania, that uh, that wasn't his real name, I presume.
2: Absolutely, no, no, the, the no, name changed no. and some uh, details have been changed. Yes.
0: No, absolutely. Thank you very much for clarifying that, um, Kasia. To continue with you, just for for a moment you mentioned organisations earlier on, what what can they do to support staff more than they are at the moment? And what practical steps can, for example, team leaders take? I, I know, mm-hmm. uh, Tracy, you mentioned that it's not a not a managerial role uh, when it comes to supervision, uh, clinical supervision. So mm-hmm. what can organisations do to help?
2: Right, I, I probably wouldn't like to focus on the organizations because there is just um, so many things that they can do. So, for example, like um, in, have access to clinical supervision for staff, facilitate this access, facilitate maybe access to 24-7, a helpline, a counseling service or have a well-being pages and so on. But because the organisations have that in place, it doesn't mean that people will be using that. And what I've learned over over the years working with the clinical teams that there is a huge role for the uh, in that for the team leaders. And yes, there are absolutely limitations of what they can do in this very busy, pressurised environment at, at the moment. But um, there are some small small potential actions that team leaders can take. That, um, for example, one of the one of the teams that I was working with in the community, the, the the team leaders send a text message uh, in the mornings to their teams, wishing everyone a good shift and and inviting to join for a tea break at the specific time, just to mm-hmm. come together, have a have a chat, shortly, few, you know, 10-15 minutes. And instead of taking those silent, um, uh, not silent, instead of taking this break alone, uh, sitting in their cars, and and we mm-hmm. know this peer support, this informal peer support, is so incredibly important
0: course we're, we're used to working remotely now so this is yes. this this can all be done remotely or in in uh, in groups uh, online
2: it could be yes it depends of the of the work setup in the in the teams of absolutely course. yes but i think something that we really need to stress here that uh yes there's individual responsibility of every staff member but team leaders really need to be role models they need to understand the importance of self-care they need to look after themselves to provide this good example to their teams um, but also really see the the staff in their teams as as persons not just nurses but people with complex personal lives with you know their own challenges so again it's very much about relationships human, human relationships and there's some some small things that could be could be done know, like the team leaders could actually <laughs> highlight to people. Listen, there is this counseling service. If you, if if you're go, if you need to speak with someone, that it, it's there available. Um, there may be this app that could you could listen to. There may be mindful breaks that are available. Uh, through those guided mindful breaks are available on the app. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's about putting a poster on the wall, and uh, so this this well-being, uh, which I I believe it's really not part of the culture at the moment. It's not part of practice just yet. So if we make it part of the culture, those small, meaningful actions, those small, uh, small reminders to people, I think they could make, over time, could make a huge difference.
0: Great. Thank you. Thank you, Kasia, very much. Tracy, of course, uh, Marie Curie offers uh, resources to care providers. Tell us a little bit about those.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, if you go to our web pages, you'll see there's a whole section on information and support, and that's open to professionals and uh, family carers mm-hmm. and patients themselves, if they care to look at it. Um, within that, there's a lot of information about the telephone support service that Marie Curie has, as well as the bereavement services. There's a lot more to it than that, but all the information is is there on our web pages if you just search for support, but it's actually you can see it as soon as you look at our homepage. Mm. The the other the other thing that is useful for um, professionals, again, for patients and uh, family carers is the palliative care knowledge zone. And that's easy to find in the website as well. And there's lots of hints and tips and information available there that could be useful to you. So that's, that's just something I wanted to signpost people to and encourage them to have a look when they have time.
0: No, thank thank you, Tracy. And of course, um, your uh, RCNI Open Access article is itself another resource, and uh, mm-hmm. nurses and other care professionals can use this too for continuing uh, professional development uh, and so on. Um, finally, uh, here at RCNI, we like to encourage nurses to publish. Kasia, you're a first time author. How was it for you? And you know, what have you gained uh, from the experience?
2: Yes, yes, that was the first article I've been, um, I was working on and, and there definitely it was incredibly interesting experience. So uh, something that I really learned about um, was the, the process for writing for publication. Um, something that previously was, let's say, clouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, beca- <laughs> yeah, it became really clear and, and something that I actually realized that I can do. It definitely helped me professionally into moving uh, into a new new career in research where publications are so important. So that was this first first step there. But also working with the group of practitioners to write this article was was really enriching because each of us brought a very different perspective, different experience and and you know through the debating about what and how and we learned a lot about you know from each other in the process. And, you know, obviously, you know, there's just personal satisfaction from being able to create something that can can help other nurses in their learning and, and indirectly may help people to receive better end of life care in their home. So that's that's really important.
0: Yes, exactly. Like like with all publishing uh, with us, there's the, the personal benefit that the authors and I think there were I think there were five or six authors uh, for this article, I yes. think. Uh, It was it was a relatively big team. So there was uh, but there was personal learning, uh, personal professional learning there, but also the idea of spreading good practice and and ensuring that service users or trying to ensure that service users receive better care in future. Um, Tracy, anything to add on that?
1: Um, I mean, I would really echo everything that that Kasia said there. Um, And I just wanted to reinforce that point there that nurses working in clinical practice may not feel confident to actually go ahead and, and write an article. However, I would say to them that those are the kind of articles that a lot of people want to read. The people that are actually working in clinical practice understand the nuances of all of that. and are not necessarily interested in the the research papers or the scientific papers. They just want to understand and read about what's happening in clinical practice. So I would say get Get some support if if there is an idea that you have. Find somebody maybe that has published a little bit. Get some guidance from them and approach journals. Don't, don't wait to be asked. Approach the journals and see what they might be interested in publishing. And it might be that you have something to say that, that they are also interested in and it's worth definitely asking. And do, just do it. Just do it. Have a go. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, we're we're all in agreement there, and of course here at RCNI we try to be as supportive as we can. So we're always always very happy to hear from people. Um, that's all we have time for. I'm afraid. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Kasha. Very much indeed for your time.
2: Thank you very much, Nick. Thank yeah. you. Glad speaking with you.
0: Thanks also to the rest of the team at Marie Curie. And thanks to you, the listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please take a look at Tracy and Kasia's article, which you can read online via rcni.com podcast. And do think about using it when you are preparing uh, to revalidate next. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye now.